0: Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. We're in the midst of a series that we've called Heroes. We did it last year. We're revisiting it this year because we're looking at biblical heroes and uh, discovering some of the qualities that they can encourage us in. And we soon realized last year that uh, we didn't even scratch the surface of the good examples in the Scripture that God has given us. And so we're revisiting that. We call it Heroes 2.0. My hero today is a man by the name of Nehemiah. You'd be happy with that, Rob. One of your favorite Old Testament characters, Nehemiah. And we're going to be looking at something of the challenges and concerns that Nehemiah and his generation faced and how Nehemiah negotiated his way leading a community through those challenges and concerns. I'm going to be talking at some length, some lightly, some more so, at some of the challenges and concerns that we face as a community here in Australia at the moment and then have a look at some of the ways that Nehemiah demonstrates heroic qualities for us in what it takes to unify a city, what it takes to be a united community in times of pressure. And so, if you have your Bible, want well, you find the book of Nehemiah, basically, if you hit Psalms, it's halfway in the Bible, it's before, just before that, and uh, it's not Joshua. So, I don't know why my Bible's open to Joshua. We'll uh, go to Nehemiah. We've looked at Nehemiah and Ezra before. In fact, in this series, the last time I got to speak in this series, I looked at Ezra. So his book and Nehemiah's book originally were one one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, it was originally one book. So similar part of history, four, five hundred years BC, God's people are occupied with rebuilding a broken city. Okay, rebuilding Jerusalem that had been destroyed by a foreign enemy, enemy, Nebuchadnezzar. I've got new teeth, I don't know what to do with them. Um, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, they're rebuilding the city, they're rebuilding the temple. It is in a a season where that is happening. And uh, Nehemiah is part and parcel of that. He is part of the third wave of returnees. They've restored worship, they've restored the word, and now they're restoring the walls of the community. That's how I see it, three points, you can't help it, can you? So Nehemiah starts by him hearing about the condition of the city and he wasn't happy about it. In fact, he was so gripped with grief that he cried for days our hero, wept for days. He worked for the king at the time and after three or four months, he couldn't quite conceal the fact that he was deeply grieved. And the king looks at him and says, there's something up, mate, what's happening? And Nehemiah courageously speaks up and says, my city, the city of my God is in ruins and it really grieves me. I'm deeply concerned about the state of my city. And the king graciously gives him political authority, sends him back, and says, I commission you as the governor over that area. Why don't you go and do whatever it takes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem again? And so Nehemiah goes, he takes a whole posse with him. It takes months to get there, it's a long way away. He plans his way, and they arrive uh, in Jerusalem. And I'm going to start just in chapter two. Many of you are familiar with the story, where he gathers a group of leaders in the city after scouting around the city and looking at the condition the place was in, gathering his information together. And he says this in verse 17. Nehemiah says, I said to them, you can see the trouble that we are in. I'm not the only one that has concerns. (laughs) You also can see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come let us sound familiar come let us rebuild the wall of jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace i then told them about the gracious hand of my god that was on me and what the king had said to me and they replied let us come let us start rebuilding and so we began this good work you know at the end of 219 2019 seems like so long ago now god really spoke to me through this passage it's like one of those moments where words jumped off the page and we were encouraged to pray and consider what God might be saying for the new year 2020 and this word come let us formed part of a theme essentially that we carried through into the 2020 year that there was something of God's calling us together to come together as a community. Because it's only together that we can fulfill the purposes of God in our generation. And that's how we started the year. It was not only a preaching series. Some of you might remember uh, the Come, Let Us preaching series looked something like that. We started that in February. We were starting 2020. We were coming together. We were facing, a rallying together to fulfill God's purposes. And then a few weeks in, something happened that none of us saw coming. My last sermon in that series, in March 2020, was preached on a phone while I was in quarantine for two weeks. I was not upside down, I was, I was sideways. Uh, you were all stuck in your homes and there was photos of people watching church like this because the whole time we were trying to broadcast, uh, just work, fumbling our way through a situation that none of us saw Coming. Let's see what happens to Nehemiah after he rallies people together and says, I've got a plan, I've got a vision, I've got a dream. Come, let us do something together. Well, what happens immediately after them? Verse 19, but, but. Some of my favourite verses in the Bible start with but, but not this one. But when Sanballat, the Horribleite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Gershom the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us, what is this you are doing they asked, are you rebelling against the king? No sooner did these people begin to get on board with what God had told them and God had laid on their heart, getting busy doing God's work after all, that pressure comes, pressure hits, concerns and challenges present themselves and as you continue to read the story of Nehemiah, it's a story of perpetual pressure. Challenges from without, like these horrible lights, okay, that we're applying pressure from the outside, and then suddenly pressure from within, when there's tension within the community itself. And then there's pressure from without bringing, being brought to bear upon them, and then there's pressure from within as infighting begins. And then there's pressure from without, pressure from within, pressure from without. This is the story of nehemiah chapter 4 it continues this we uh, are introduced again to these characters as nehemiah gets on with rebuilding the wall and verse 7 in chapter 4 says but when sand the who the the horrible light that's right Sanballat the horrible light Tobiah, the Arabs, the ammonites and the people of ashdod well now there's people the the, the the pressures are just growing now when they heard that the repairs to jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed they were very angry They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. As people are getting on with God's business, the pressure is increasing. Verse 9 says, But, but, this is a good but, but we prayed to our God and we pivoted. There's a 2020 word, hey? We pivoted. We adjusted what we were doing to practically... Meet the pressure that we were facing. Meanwhile, verse 10 bad news spreads fast. The people in Judah said, Hang on, the strength of our laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we can't go on anymore. Also, our enemies said, Before they know what to we'll see us, we'll be right there among them. We will kill them and put an end to this work. The Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Bad news. And fear spreads fast. And these are God's people saying, the pressure's still there, the pressure's still on. Fear is building in this community. Verse 13 says, therefore, it's a fancy way of saying, but. But. I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, the exposed places, posting them my families with swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, officials, and the rest of these people, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Great and awesome. Fight for your families. Fight for your sons and your daughters, your wives and your home. Again, Nehemiah does not ignore the concerns. He adjusts. He pivots, he encourages, because he recognises the reality of pressure coming from without. Now, wouldn't it be nice if that were the end of the story? But no. No, not at all. In chapter 5 begins by saying this. Now what happened is the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to instay life, we have to get grain. Others were saying, well, we're mortgaging our fields, vineyards and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, well, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we have the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and although our children are as good as theirs, this is family. Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery to them. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Having just solved one problem, Nehemiah is now <laughs> faced with another. Tensions from without and now tensions from within. And I love Nehemiah's brutal honesty here. Therefore, I was angry. It's okay to get angry Nehemiah responds if you continue to read on and he basically says because this is his own family he's dealing with he basically says to them "Oi, pull your heads in don't yeah it's in the Hebrew you'd love you love it he says pull your heads in don't you realize we have a job to do we don't have time to waste energy on infighting when we have real enemies out there and we have a task to do. And he stirs and he encourages God's people by basically telling them, don't be selfish. Don't you realize the way that you are conducting yourselves will give God a bad reputation? It will make our enemies mock us if we continue to infight like this. And chapter 5 ends with him solving that problem. And wouldn't it be nice if that was the end of it? But chapter 6 begins by saying this. When word came to Sanballat, who was he again? The horrible light, To buy Gershom, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though after that time I had not set the doors and the gates in place. Sanballat and Gershom sent me this message. Come, let us, using your own words against you, come, let us, I speak of your language, meet together in one of the villages on the plains of Oh, no, Now there's a giveaway right there, don't? <laughs> should I go? Oh no. Oh, no. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply, "I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I go and leave it to go down to you?" Four times, they sent me the same message: "Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. And each time I gave them the same answer, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. Then the fifth time, come on, Sandballot sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Having just solved the problem from within, Nehemiah is now faced from pressure from with out. And somehow he stuck to his guns and he did not let it wear him. Down. You see, the point is, Nehemiah could not stop the pressure from coming from without. He could not stop it coming to him. But he could stop it getting to him. He could not stop the relentless tension coming to him. But he was in charge of whether or not he let it get to him. These outside pressures were what they were. They're always going to be there. And Nehemiah could do, any, could do nothing about it. But with the, in the walls of his own city, where he had jurisdiction, Nehemiah stood firm and he completed his task. And so later in that chapter, verse 15, one of the greatest verses in the book of Nehemiah, it just simply says this. In chapter 6, 15, it says, We finished the wall. On the 25th of Elaw in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard about it, the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done by the help of our God. And wouldn't it be nice if that were the end of it? But in the very next verse, in the very next verse, we find out that the pattern repeats itself again. He finds out that some of his own leaders... We're going behind his back. We're conspiring with Tobiah. Not the horrible light, but the other guy. We're talking about him behind, or or conspiring behind his back. Having had pressure from without, there was now pressure from within. Pressure from without, pressure from within. This seemingly relentless cycle of pressures that had the potential to break him or to make him to make him the hero that he is today for us. And what's really interesting is that this pattern is repeated in the book of Acts. What starts as a very cohesive, unified community, Acts 1 and 2, all together in one place, the Holy Spirit comes, instantly pressure is applied and the community is told to stop preaching in Jesus' name. The apostles are arrested, beaten. What's the very next thing that happens? There is uh, the, the case of Ananias and Sapphira, tension within The community, things not going so well within. Well, they overcome that and what's the very next thing that happens? There's another arrest and pressure and persecution from without. They overcome that and what's the very next thing that happens? Acts chapter 6 is now there's again pressure from within as the Greek-speaking widows and the Hebrew-speaking widows are treated differently. In that culture, if you were in the Jewish community, uh, you were a true blue Jew if you spoke Hebrew. You see, that's what... The good Hebrews, Jew. The good Jewish people speak Hebrew, but not everyone did. Some people grew up in the regional areas where Hebrew was not spoken and they were Jewish, but they only spoke Greek. They couldn't help it. That's just who they were. And so within the church community, they were realizing that there was bias being demonstrated against this minority group, this minority group of Greek speakers. And Peter and the apostles recognized this and they're like, no, hang on. That might be okay in broader community but in this house we don't treat people differently like that. In this house we treat one another equally and it's there in Acts chapter 6 that they appointed leaders to make sure that this minority group was not looked down upon and treated differently because they happened to speak a different language and have a funny accent and they overcome that problem from within. Then Stephen gets stoned and they experience tension again from without pressure from within pressure from without pressure from within and then pressure from without that is the story of the book of acts and for some of you you're listening and going well that sounds like the story of parts of my life some of us know what it's like in our own homes to go through season where there's tension within the home tension within relationships tension within marriages and then to come through that and then to experience an outward pressure, maybe a long-term illness or something in the broader family or an economic struggle or a death of someone. It's no one's fault, but it brings pressure to bear upon the relationship. Some of us know what that's like in business. I'm speaking to a business owner this week. I've just finally finished a long season of dealing with a mm, problematic staff member. Tension within the business Very difficult, very complex and very hard to deal with where a business owner doesn't even feel like going to his own place of work. Some of you know what that's like. And you'd also know those times in business where there's tension from without, supply and demand issues, economic downturn. Some of us know what that's like. Some of us have experienced that in church life. Some of us have experienced that in sporting clubs. And some of us, as we know, can experience it on city-wide scale. One of the things we've seen on our TV this week with what's been happening in Melbourne is evident or is an outcome of otherwise decent people being experiencing pressure over long periods of time. How many of you (laughs) are glad you don't live in Melbourne for the last 18 months? And when people experience pressure and pressure and pressure over long periods of time, there is the tendency, not the definite outcome, but there is a tendency that people do not act at their best. And that is one of the concerns, and certainly for me, as I look back from our first Come Let Us series of 18 months ago, that I'm witnessing a community, not specifically here, but I'm looking at a nation that has experienced this seemingly relentless pressure, and the concern of that bubbling over, in a sense, where people are not at their best because there is a reality to life that life has pressures, life has challenges, and life has complications. In the past couple of weeks here in our church family, I've had numbers of conversations with people in our church and with other pastor friends sharing about some tense interactions they've had with loved ones in their family. Tense interactions I've had with friends where disagreements have turned quite ugly and rude. And people who have disagreed on things before, but having experienced a time of pressure, understanding that sometimes people are not at their best in those moments. And it's not because the issues themselves are actually all that important. It's just the bubbling up of pressure over time. Now, the good news, time for some good news? Yeah. The good news about both the book of Acts and the story of Nehemiah is that they both tell the tale of communities who come through those times of pressure and fulfill God's purposes. Because yes, life has pressures. Yes, life has concerns. Yes, like Nehemiah, sometimes things deeply trouble us but yes there is grace yes there is hope yes particularly for the christian community there is supernatural strength yes there are thorns in our flesh that sometimes for whatever reason he just won't remove but yes his grace is abundantly sufficient in those times Yes, there are tensions, but yes, there is love. There is a a relentless love that is pursuing us that will never leave us nor forsake us. Yes, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And yes, yes, our future is brighter than our yesterdays. God has given us the grace to overcome. And this is the story of Nehemiah. And this is the story of the book of Acts. And while it is okay to, and, and the right thing to be grateful, to be in the land that we are in, Nehemiah wanted nothing more than to be in the promised land. There's nowhere else on earth I'd rather be than Jerusalem. There's no, I don't want to be in Babylon anymore. I don't want to be down in Egypt. Thank God we're in Jerusalem. Thank God we're here. I'm super grateful I am here right now. But still I say, okay to say There are things that concern me. But these stories tell the tale of a people willing and able to stay together as they follow God's purposes, be they facing pressures from without or pressures from within. And it's one of the reasons that Nehemiah is a hero to me, because he was able to lead a community, lead a united city, walking them through a period of relentless pressure, To see God's purposes fulfilled. And I want to share in true Chad style three things that I see in Nehemiah. And they don't all start with the same letter so I'm getting creative, okay? First pertinent thing I I see about Nehemiah and how he demonstrates heroic qualities is this. Nehemiah built a wall around a city. He did not build a wall within it. The wall Nehemiah built was around the city, but he did not build a wall through it. The walls he gave his time and attention to were walls that united the community And didn't divide them. Under Nehemiah, God's people were not on different sides of a fence. Because there was no fence in the city. There was no wall through the city. And I feel that we need to change the way we think and we speak when it comes to our differences that we have. When we have differences, we are not on different sides of a fence. We may have differences, but we are in the same city. We are in the same family and we're at the same table. We just might have different views. We just may have different perspectives. There are people in this room that see things differently. But we're not on different sides. We're in the same city, at the same table, as part of the same family. This may come as a shock to you, but there are people in our church family who support Port Power. There are people in this room today who are radical crow supporters. And there are people here in this room who last night cheered for demons. Now, I don't know about you. And for our international audience, I'm not even going to explain what that means. But there are literally people in our church who were wishing the best for a group of demons. But we are not on different sides of a fence. We are in the same city. We are in the same home. We are at the same table. And those people share a passion for the greatest sport that's ever been invented there are people in this church family who i know last federal election voted for liberal and others who voted for greens i assume there's also people in our church family don't know this for sure who voted for an independent candidate and some who may very likely have voted for labor but those people are not on different sides of offence they just share different views they're in the same city they're in the same home they're at the same table there's some people here in our church who are complete and avid teetotalers they hate alcohol and are fully convinced the world would be a far better place if it was never sold again there are others in this room who will go home today for lunch and not back a couple of reds they are not on different sides of a fence both believe that their bodies are a temple of the holy spirit and their job is to steward it well they are part of the same city the same family and they sit at the same table there are people who today who read the first chapter of genesis and believe that it shows That God created the planet that we are sitting on right now in literally six 24 hour days, a matter of just a few thousand years ago. There are others here in this room who believe that the Genesis 1 story uses that language, but actually is showing or demonstrating or teaching or intending to communicate something different. These are not people on different sides. They just have different views. There are those of us in this room that view the afterlife differently to others. Some of us who believe that we as believers in Jesus will spend eternity in a place called heaven. Others who believe, no, we're going to spend eternity in a place called the new heaven and earth. There are some who believe that people that don't believe in Jesus will experience an eternal an everlasting existence in perpetual torment and pain and others who believe that no unbelievers in Jesus don't live forever because eternal life is only in Jesus they have different views but these people do not exist on two sides of a fence we are in the same city in the same table in the same family and one day we will know one day We will know there are some people in our church family whose main concern in the last 18 months, of which they've had many, but whose main concern has been the damage or the potential damage that a virus could do to them and to their community. That has been their main concern. There are other people in our church family who are concerned about that but who would say their main concern is the damage that a government can do if that's not managed well. These are not people on different sides of a fence. They are people who both care about their community. They just see things a little differently. There are people in our church family who believe that the best thing for their health right now and their family and their future and their community is to go to their doctor and get an injection. There are people in our church family who believe the best thing for their health, their future, their family and their community is not to get an injection. These people are not on different sides of a the fence. They just have different views. We are in the same city in the same family, and we sit at the same table. There are people here that believe that in the last 18 months, Bayside, we've done a pretty good job in negotiating the things that the government has asked us to do, while still retaining our values as a family, to be a a place that is free, to be a place that is not fear-focused, but faith-focused, that we are doing what we need to do by putting up signs, but we're not going too far and putting up signs on every wall. There are some people who believe we've got that balance pretty right. There are others who believe we've actually gone too far in certain areas in the last 18 months. That telling people to sit while they're drinking is just ridiculous. Telling people to mask up for two months when there's no COVID in our community. Yeah, it's, but it's just ridiculous and it's perpetuating a culture of fear and anxiety. And others believe that, no, we haven't gone too far. We, we actually haven't gone far enough. When we first opened 12 months ago for our first month of meetings, it was funny, there was seniors in our church who would run up to me and give me a great big hug because they'd not hugged anyone for weeks. It was like a hug fest. <laughs> oh, we're back in church. Mwah, mwah, hug. And yet, others at the same time who called me and said, Listen, we feel unsafe with seeing so many people hugging. And we don't feel it looks good as a church when people aren't seen to be socially distancing like there is a community expectation that we do. These are not people with different sides of offense. They have people who are still in our home, they just see things differently. We are one family. And we hold different views on different things. but there is not we will not give our time to building a wall through our city. We have a wall around us, but we will not allow things like this to come between us. And one of my biggest concerns, not for our church, but for our society at large, and other people that I've spoken to in the last week share this very much, is the potential of disagreement producing division. Because just because we disagree, it doesn't necessarily mean or need to lead to division. We started this year, 2021, changing the lyrics of our national anthem. New Year's Eve was announced. We were no longer young and free. We were one. We publicly made an announcement as a nation as to our unity and within weeks we were seeing borders shut. People locked out of different states, communicating almost the opposite. Did you know we had borders in Australia? Do you actually know we had that? I only knew it because when I drive through Australia, you saw signs that say, welcome to our state. That has been a challenge for many. And of course, the biggest divisions are not necessarily physical, but they are relational my encouragement today is that we as the church need to continue to model, because I believe we are doing it, but continue to model what it means to be able to disagree and not be disagreeable. Where we are able to model what it is to have unity and diversity together, like Ephesians 4 describes. Because I believe this, there is no such thing as a divisive issue. There's no such thing as a divisive issue. There's only divisive behaviour. There are only divisive words. Different opinions do not necessarily mean division comes. It is behaviours that cause division. It is words that cause division. It is possible for people to disagree to hold differing views, to voice them honestly and yet not divide over it. Issues don't divide. Speech, attitudes and behaviour divides. And Nehemiah would not have a bar of it. He gave his energies to building a wall around a city but he would not build a wall through it. And I want to encourage us to continue in that vein. We may disagree, but we are not on different sides. We are in the same city, in the same family, at the same table. Second quality I love about Nehemiah, I feel like I need to joke about now. Second thing I love about this hero is that he he knew when to hold back and when to speak out. He knew when it was to hold back and knew when to speak out. One of the first things we learn about Nehemiah is that he cared deeply. When he heard about Jerusalem, like I said, he wept four days. He was an emotional man. You see that as you read his prayers through the book. He wept and mourned. He describes himself in chapter 5 as very angry. In chapter 13, he describes himself as greatly displeased. He was an emotional man, Nehemiah. Yet, as passionate as he was, as intense his feelings of concern, at times he held his tongue. At times he held his tongue, waiting for an opportune time to share those otherwise private passions. The first couple of chapters, as I said, he waited four months deeply feeling something before he was invited to speak. And he spoke his mind. When he first went to Jerusalem and he's walking around inspecting the walls, he says there in chapter 3, I did not tell anyone what was on my heart. I held my tongue. Yet as you continue to read, of course he can't lead without eventually vocalising something. When the time came for him to speak out, he did so. But even though his convictions may have been triggered by deep emotion, when he communicated... He did so in a thoughtful way. He had a, when he, chapter two when he just talked to the king. He had a plan. He had a strategy. He'd done his research before he spoke. In chapter thirteen, when he hears that God's word was being violated in the running of the temple, he speaks things out and confronts things that are happening. Verse chapter 13 is one of the most passionate moments we see of Nehemiah. Again and again and again, he confronts issues. He speaks them out. He speaks them out. He speaks them out. But every time he does so, he does so because he can say, because the Bible says this. Because history teaches us this. Read chapter 13. He doesn't just speak his mind emotionally. He's considered in how he speaks. And I think there's a lesson in there that we can learn from this hero, especially in times of pressure. Especially in emotional times of deep concern, knowing when to hold back and when to speak out. And when we do speak out, to do so in a considered, thoughtful manner, to be able to articulate why we hold to certain things. It is a great value. This weekend, literally this morning, because I wanted you to, I guess, hear from me, I have got front foot on an issue preemptively and spoken out about something. Um, Something that has concerned me for a while, something that concerns our eldership team and many people in our church and it's the issue of mandating vaccine, vaccine passports or passes and specifically to do so in places of worship. This is the reality that we don't have to face yet the government has not imp- imp- uh, impl- uh, imposed it upon us. The friends of mine in New South Wales and Victoria are facing this right now, where they have to exclude certain people from their worship services if they cannot prove that they have had an injection. Now, place, these rules actually place Australia in a really unique position globally, because even in places that have vaccine passes, like California in the US, quite big on them, they make an exemption for places of worship even in place like italy where there are vaccine passes everywhere they've made exemption even italy for a place of worship the same with canada made exemptions for places of worship so it's not something that we is a definite that's going to happen if it does as it's happening in the eastern states it may even only be temporary but it's still something that right now we can be preemptive about And so this week, I've literally signed, as many other churches have done, by the way, it's not just on me, and in fact, whole denominations have written (laughs) to leaders saying, listen, the church is a place of welcome. The church, my house should be called a house of prayer for all people. And to exclude people on the basis of whether they've taken a medicine or not is something that cuts right across our value of welcoming in all. And that's something we've done this week. There are times to hold back and there are times to speak out and move forward. And Nehemiah models something of what that is. The last thing about Nehemiah I just want to share is that Nehemiah stayed in his lane. And he let others keep to theirs. He stayed in his lane and he let others keep to theirs. You know, Nehemiah was not a prophet. He wasn't a preacher, he wasn't a priest, he was a politician, he was a governor. Nehemiah was a governor and so when it came to dedicating the sheep gate in chapter 3, Eliashib did that because he was the high priest, that was his job, I'm just a politician, I don't do the job of the high priest. When it came in chapter 8 to reading the Torah, Ezra did that. Because he's the scribe, I'm a politician, that's his job. When it came in chapter 8 to teaching the people the law, the Levites did that, that's not my job, I'm a politician, that's theirs. When it came to dedicating the wall, to purifying the people, to carrying out temple sacrifices, Nehemiah took his hands off. He stayed out of it because those things were not his job. They are not the responsibilities of a governor Nehemiah stayed in his lane. And he was certainly not backward and coming forward. Honestly, you should read Nehemiah today, chapter 13. He spoke very directly and he spoke to the priests and said, Oi, I don't agree with what you're doing. He spoke to the Levites and said, Oi, I don't don't agree with what you're doing. And here's the basis why. But he did not try to take over their jobs because he knew they had a job to do. He had a job to do. And I'll let you stay in your lane and you let me stay in mine. And I feel there's also a lesson there for all of us, particularly in times of pressure, to know that we need everyone at their best. And one of the ways we do that is make sure that we each stay in our grace space to know what God has called me to do. This may come as a surprise to you, but I'm not a car guy. So don't come to me if you're looking for the best advice on a motor vehicle. I'm not an investor. Don't come to me if you want the best advice on stocks, precious metals or crypto. I am not a health professional. Don't come to me if you want the best advice on medicines, vitamin supplements, or injections I'm gonna stay in my lane and let other people keep to theirs and I believe that we must give an account for our own conduct our own calling and our own conscience and while I have opinions and convictions on many things one of my convictions is this I'll stick to my lane please you also keep to yours Because particularly in times of long-term pressure, we need each other to play our own part. For each other, we're each committed to being part of the solution and not part of the problem. Not building walls within the city, but maintaining the strength and unity that we have to operate in the fruit of the Spirit at all times. Fruit of the Spirit, which is kindness and patience. And also recognizing that the fruit of the Spirit or love is always protective and always rejoices with truth. We speak the truth, we do it in love, commit ourselves to the fruit of the Spirit. That each of us employ a come-let-us attitude as we focus on the main thing, the person and the presence of Christ. As we are devoted to keeping the main thing. The main thing. And one of the reasons I, while I have concerns about our nation, like the Israelites, I would not want to be anywhere else but here. I do still have concerns. But over all those concerns, I have hope. Hope is alive. And one of the reasons I have hope is because I know the church is committed by and large to demonstrating what it is to be counter-cultural. The things that we see corroding in the culture around us have the potential to influence us, but greater is the potential of the one who lives within us as we seek to bring the culture of heaven to earth and make this world a better place. And today, that's what I see here. I see heroes. You know, when we started this series in 2020, last year, the full name of this series was actually this Heroes come in all shapes and sizes. Heroes share common qualities, but each are different. And this morning, that's what I see a group of people, each different, but who share a common hero and share common heroic qualities as we seek to be like him in ways that mean something to us so i want to thank you for continuing to follow him keeping him the main thing the main thing and continuing to pray like we did in that new song this morning that holy spirit would be poured out you know i was in a conference many years ago in a tense environment of pastors and preacher friends of mine who'd all come from a fractured background. Many of them were tense. Many of them had very, very difficult shared experiences. Someone, as we were praying together, saw a vision of a whole different group of puddles with ducks in them. Duck pond over there, duck pond over there. They were all distinct, little duck ponds. He said, and then it started to rain. And as it rained, each of those duck ponds rose and became one. And our answer is not to find agreement on the finer details of things. Our answer is to keep him the main thing and believe for his presence to bring peace in a culture that needs it desperately. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand?